Hello, my name's Andre Longley. I'm the editor of The Hammond High. Each week on this podcast, we'll be bringing you an interview with a guest with strong links to North London, where we'll discuss their lives, careers and love of the area. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe, like and leave a glowing review wherever you get your podcasts. This week, our guest is Pat Venditti, Programme Director at Greenpeace UK. He's been an activist for many years, lobbying governments and corporations to tackle the climate and nature emergencies. Born in Canada, he moved to the UK in the early 2000s, but is now settled in North London. Chief reporter Frankie Berry spoke to him at the start of July about what it's like to be on the front line of high-profile direct action and where the cause is in 2020. We dive straight in with Pat talking about what Greenpeace UK had been up to in recent weeks. Thank you for joining us um, on the podcast. That's really lovely of you. Um, so you've been living around Hampstead area, is that right? Yeah, I, we lived there. I, now I live a bit further north up uh, in Totteridge and Whetstone. Okay. Um, but in the past, we lived uh, right near the hospital. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and my now, son was born there, actually. Oh, lovely. Uh, how, did you, how did you yeah. find it? Why did you move away? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think London's a big place. We got drawn to Hackney initially, and then we got oh. drawn to the schools of uh, Bounds Green and Muswell Hill. So oh. uh, yeah, so we've moved around <laughs> London a fair bit. Yeah, of course. But I mean, you must have fond memories of the Hampstead area, right? Well, definitely. And we spend, uh, you know, we still spend a lot of time there uh, at, at the Heath. Um, I think with children, it's, it's great to be able to go there and uh, wander around the woods and climb the trees and go swimming and do all the things that are you know that are uh, that are available there so we 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 spend you know a fair bit of time still there um yeah. yeah it's really nice um okay and you are campaigns director is that right at greenpeace is that have i got your job title correct pretty much it's program director so it's uh, but it effectively it's it's for all of the campaigns we run here in the uk for greenpeace that sounds like a massive job if nothing yeah, else. <laughs> it's a big job to do. We have a pretty big challenge, you know, to deal with all the environmental problems the world is facing. Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, yeah, so it's, it's a big job. A good job, but a big one. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what you've been doing recently? Well, yeah, I think probably like everyone else, we've been trying to figure out what the future looks like post-COVID. Um, so before, uh, the, the virus really, we were looking at, you know, how do we shift really rapidly away from, uh, oil and gas, uh, because we know the industry is so, um, linked to, uh, to climate change, obviously, and responsible for climate change. So how do we get big companies like, uh, BP and Shell, who are obviously based here in the UK to shift to hundred percent uh, renewables. So that was a big part of our uh, of what we were doing. And now what we're seeing is, okay, well, how do we look at how do we view that in a lens where uh, actually the oil price is tanked out, um, where people are maybe going to drive less, where we have an opportunity really to rethink how we as a society operate and try to gain some of the uh, the benefits that we've seen from living a life that isn't so uh, dependent on fossil fuels. 
for example, that we've seen in the last few weeks. So that's, you know, one, one element. Like the, the other is really trying to tackle things like deforestation in the Amazon. How are we going to uh, challenge the government in Brazil uh, and the industry in Brazil who are destroying the Amazon, leading these terrible fires that we're seeing, um, and really looking at the links to the UK, and particularly meat consumption, how much meat we eat, how much meat the supermarkets sell, how that's linked back to the companies who, at the end of the day, are driving Amazon deforestation. Um, you know, we've had ships going to the Antarctic this year uh, to help protect the oceans. Um, oh, looking, wow. yeah. So that's been interesting. Yeah. Um, I haven't, like, unluckily, I've not been on one, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty seasick, so probably luckily. Um, and then, of course, we're looking at plastic pollution and really trying to stop this scourge of plastic pollution from. Uh, from continuing to to pollute uh, the oceans and rivers and 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 our neighborhoods. I mean, all of those things are just massive tasks, aren't they? Anyway, but coronavirus has completely changed everything. You know, you wouldn't have expected uh, four months ago that no, everyone stopped going out of their their homes. You know, um, so that must have completely changed your tactics. No, or try you have to reevaluate everything. We have, um, you know, I think this has been a terrible thing, really, the virus is the first thing to say, but um, I think it certainly has opened people's eyes up to, like, what kind of society do we want to have on the other side of this, uh, of this crisis? Uh, and I think people have seen, like, they value their family more. They value having more time. They value being able to walk down the street and not worry about having an asthma attack because of all the pollution from cars. So, so I think, I think it, we're seeing like in opinion research and just what, how people are talking, um, you know, certainly in the conversations I'm having that um, we want, we can see a different world possible. So I think that's something, if something comes out of it, that's certainly going to be something that will be um, really positive, but you know, there's a long road to hoe there. Um, I think in terms of us as Greenpeace, like we're obviously a, an organization that is, is well known for direct action. Um, that's much more difficult to do in a scenario where we're in lockdown and you can't gather and obviously we don't want to take away from the emergency services. So for us, that's posed some challenges about, well, what do we do if the thing we do isn't really allowed? Um, and so, so we've had to really draw on a, you know, the whole toolbox of things that we have uh, and really amplify our work on, um, on digital. Um, look, you know, trying to get more on YouTube, trying to do more videos that we can share on our Facebook or Instagram channels, uh, investigations, like doing things that don't require, um, don't require. Um, leaving uh, the house. Yeah, leaving <laughs> the house more, for more or less. Yeah, more yeah. or less. I mean, yeah, of course, and there's been loads of protests, not just about environmental issues, but obviously, of course, Black Lives Matter and everything, socially distanced protests. So people are still wanting to get out and do direct action um, and that sort of thing, aren't they? Yeah, and we're seeing that. Like, I think the energy is there, um, certainly with the Black Lives uh, Matter um, protests. It's, it's, it's been pretty empowering to see that as a discussion that's finally coming to the fore uh, with hopefully some more significant changes um, 
happening from 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 now. Let's let's hope. Um, well, it's shown that direct action does does work in bringing awareness to the issue. All the protests and uh, you know and everything, rather than just being behind the scenes, which I suppose it has. Maybe that movement has been more in yeah recent yeah. History. yeah definitely. And I think for us, like we've seen that. Like for us, it's it, it's uh, it's absolutely apparent and obvious that uh, direct action and taking protest works. Uh, so, and, you know, we saw that certainly in the last uh, month uh, with BLM. Last year, we saw it with the, with the, the youth strikers having mm -hmm. tens of thousands of kids out of school on Fridays saying like, wait a minute, uh, this is not, you're not doing good enough, guys. Let's get, you know, let's, let's get it together a bit more. Uh, and then in our history, you know, whether it was from getting between uh, the whalers and uh, whaling harpoon or going into nuclear test sites or invading um, AGMs of big corporates or last June, about a year ago, we invaded the mansion house um, to, to basically deliver a manifesto on the climate emergency to the chancellor. So these things all help basically to focus the conversation and make uh, whatever that change you're looking for, for us, you know, environmental change primarily, uh, but also social change, uh, something that can't be ignored or is much more difficult to ignore it and, and hopefully spurs on uh, action. Yeah, I mean, I know lots of um, people within activist groups have have quite a long history of activism. Do you have any kind of anecdotes that you can give us about your own activism, maybe in your past? I don't know. Yeah, well, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think the Mansion House last year is a good example because this was in the context of us trying to um, trying to elevate the climate emergency as something that really needed to be tackled much more seriously and much more dramatically than the government and business had uh, had done uh, up to that point. Uh, it was a few months after uh, the Extinction Rebellion protests in London. Um, where the whole notion of climate emergency um, had really been raised and in the context of the student strikes uh, also, uh, and Greta, and this whole vibe, basically, of we need to do more on the climate emergency. So, um, yeah, so basically, I don't know if you know about the Mansion House speech, but it is a gathering of all of the, the great and the mighty of the UK finance and political uh, establishment, uh, and it's in a the mansion house in in um in central london which effectively is a bit like you know not a prison but it was basically like storming the bastille in uh in the french Love revolution it. Love it. now there's not a lot of ways to get in it's very it's very secure but we did manage to find a way in and um and marched into the into the the room where uh, hammond was giving his speech the chancellor at the time with I think at the end of the day, we had around 50 women in red dresses with climate emergency sashes um, and managed to disrupt the event. And, and I managed to hand uh, our manifesto uh, to uh, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England at the time. Uh, and Hammond didn't take it, sadly. Oh, he, uh, he, he rejected oh, it. <laughs> so, that's exactly what I thought. So, there, you know, so that was quite, that was quite interesting. We were up in a fracking field uh, in Lancashire a few years ago with Emma and Sophie Thompson. 
uh, where we did a fake bake-off in uh, this place, <laughs> Preston New Road, uh, where the farmer came out and muck sprayed us all. So that was interesting. Um, oh no! And, is yeah, that what I, I think I, it is? Muck just mud, or muck is in worse? No, or... like poo. Yeah, like pig. Oh god! It did smell. We did oh, finish no. the bake-off. It was a lovely cake, but you know, you get into all these kind of situations. I think so. Um, so I've been doing it a long time. So there's 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 lots of those type of of stories. Whether it's from the rainforests of Canada and stopping logging there, um, to this kind of more intimate gathering at the Mansion House. Um, yeah. Were you born in Canada, or did you did you grow up in Canada? What's your history there? Yeah, I, I'm. I grew up in a place called St. Catharines, which is, no one will know, um, but is close to Niagara Falls, which probably everyone will know. Um, yes. So yeah, so I, I, I came to the UK in about 15 years ago now. Uh, and uh, I never thought I'd end up in London, to be honest. I, it's not a place I had any, uh, I didn't think well of it, but I'd never been here really. And um, and I've been here ever since, and I love it. And you know. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I mean, what's what, how do you see the differences between living in Canada and living over in the UK? What what's the most stark differences for you? Well, I think in Canada you're so influenced by the U.S. It's very you know close, obviously, to America. Um, it's a, just a slower pace of life, really. Um, Canada is an amazingly beautiful place, and it's a vast, a vast country. So you have everything from uh, from seaside to incredible mountains to more, you know, pastoral areas to big cities. So it's very interesting. But it's a bit, it's a bit quieter. I think in London you feel, in the UK you feel like a bit more like you're in the center of things, um, whereas in Canada. Um, you feel more you're at the edges of things. Um, yeah. But it's, it's always hard concept. to choose where to go. We're a bit disappointed because we're not able to, to go there. Usually we're able to go and visit family and whatnot, but because of COVID, that's not possible. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a disappointing year. Um, yeah, but. of course, with, um, with all the flights being cancelled. And I mean, how has coronavirus lockdown been for you? Uh, yeah, it's been okay. I can't complain. I think it's it's not the best thing, I think, for anyone. Um, and just putting one step ahead of one foot in front of the other. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for it to end, to, to be honest. But I'm also a bit worried to go to a pub or get my hair cut. I'm not fully confident that uh, it's as safe as it's being made out to be. Um, but we have a garden, Saturday, you know, I have a garden and, you know, I think the first while was very tough when no one could see anyone. Um, and we were all very worried about what, how it was transmitting in the, in, you know, in the community. But I feel it's a bit less like that. Now it's more a question of what's the longer term looking like. Yeah. I mean, when it first happened, everyone um, was it was kind of hard to get out of a routine of going to the office and going out. But now everyone's in a routine of being inside. It's easier, right? Yeah. And we're not like having to fight to find toilet paper and worry about whether you can get yeah. flour to bake cookies or something. Like I think things have normalized in a big way. I think what I I'm a bit disappointed about though, is how it, well, I guess it's a question is how quickly we all go back to the way it was beforehand because you know riding my bike this morning into the office i thought well actually there's still so much traffic out here and it really is not very pleasant 
so why do we, why are, where are the bike lanes? Where are all these things we were promised to actually change the way things are, are, are happening? So I hope that's not a temporary blip because really I think most people will feel we can live our lives a little more cleaner and a little nicer, but that does mean not everyone can be driving their car into town to go to work and this kind of stuff. So we'll see how that all plays out, but, um, but we're gonna be pushing the government pretty hard to make sure that whatever comes next is consistent with dealing with the climate emergency, with the health emergency, with the nature emergency, um, and coming out of this in a better way than we went into it. I mean, it's, there's been, there will be challenges as well, won't they? Because people might be scared to go on public transport, which is, of course, the, potentially the best way to not drive your car is to use public transport, apart from if you can't cycle, if it's not, or in walking yeah. distance. Um, I know in Wuhan, I think there was a kind of uplift in the number of people using their cars after the lockdown. Um, that's right. So I, I don't know, that's a challenge that we all have to face, I suppose. It is absolutely a challenge. And the question is, how do we, you know, how do we deal with that? I think one is people are going to be working from home less, uh, sorry, working from home more. Um, so do we build that more into the fabric of the working, uh, working week? Uh, can the government um, make electric bikes available for people with you know, less mobility or less fitness to be able to at least be able to move from point A to point uh, B. Can we actually make it safe? Like what I hear from a lot of people, whether they're young or old, about cycling is not so much that they don't want to cycle and they're unwilling to cycle. It's that they don't feel safe to cycle because they're sharing the space with cars and trucks and all the rest of it. So why don't we make space that makes them feel safe because that yeah. will help tackle the, 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 the problem. So I think we can see like the solutions are there, but we need to just keep, keep cracking away, cracking away with it. I know exactly what you mean, because I think the same, I was, I would be really um, not frightened. That's the wrong word, but I would be anxious maybe about cycling on London roads because they're so, busy with cars as you're right if we had cycle lanes and more of those <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more well, cycle exactly. friendly. yeah yeah so we're making steps towards it but there's really a long way long way to go and it's it's kind of baby steps at the minute lots of work to be done you, you said you're gonna uh, be pushing the government hard do you have any insights you can give us about what what's in the pipeline for greenpeace uh, yeah sure um i think the well, listen, I think next year um, we're going to be hosting the COP, which is the big climate summit where all oh. the world's governments come together. That was meant to be just just this November, uh, but it's been delayed until next uh, next November. So I think, you know, here we've got a chance from this government to really tackle the climate emergency and the nature emergency in a big in a big way uh, with a with an end point that makes sense i think to most people so we're re what we did a month ago last month we released a manifesto which outlines all of the areas that the government needs to act on in order to address those crises uh, some of which they're starting to tackle so today i think the government says they're going to put uh three billion into 
um, home insulation and green measures. Uh, but when you look at the scale of the problem, that's probably, you know, 10% of what's needed, really, right? So it's a bit of a drop in the bucket. So it makes a good headline. It's a welcome inch forward, but, you know, we need to be going miles forward, not inches forward. So, so we're going to be looking at that and we're going to be pushing them hard on, like, what they can do for investment in the UK. Um, uh, we estimate that if the government and industry really picked up the green recovery, we could create around 1.8 million jobs. So that would be really help, I think, all the people who are suffering with unemployment and just helping to get the economy back on its feet in a green and sensible direction. Uh, and then we're looking at things like trade, for example. So the US and the UK are negotiating a trade deal um, we put out a petition around three weeks ago, which says if you are going to sign a deal, you can't allow food standards to slip. So right into law that, uh, that you won't undermine existing food standards on animal welfare, on environment, etc. Um, yeah, and that's generated massive support from, from the public. And so these are the type of things we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at the rhetoric the government is putting out versus the reality. Uh, why are they approving gas, natural gas pipeline expansion in Mozambique, for example? You think this is not consistent. So our job is to really look in the corners where it's a little bit dark, see what's really going on, and then hold it up to the hold it up to the light. And I think that's what we're going to try and do for the next little while. Yeah, and, and coming out of this pandemic as well. Um... Oh, that all sounds <laughs> that all sounds great. Um, I mean, if you had to pinpoint any one challenge going forward, what what, what do you think that would be for Greenpeace? Uh, I think really, you know, we talked about it at the beginning. It's just the scale of the problem that we're facing. Uh, like climate change is not going away. Uh, it's going to come back and hit us hard again and again. And and you know, last week it was reported that. You know, the UK is regularly going to have 40 degree temperature summers, you know, which, you know, which is, is very, which is, which is crazy. In the Arctic, we're seeing the highest temperatures ever. So I think for us, the biggest challenge is just accelerating this change as quickly as possible. And then it's hard to make change, right? There's a lot of money involved. A lot of people don't want to see change uh, who have power. Um, and so that's, as ever, our challenge is to kind of change that mindset, have people embrace the obvious reality that moving to a green future, which deals with both the COVID crisis and the nature crisis and the climate crisis, is the most sensible, cheapest, best way forward. And so that's what we'll be we'll be working on. And then, of course, figuring out how we can go climb buildings again. That's something we're always uh, thinking of. <laughs> um, you keep referring to the the nature crisis and the climate crisis. I, I personally, I'm not sure about our listeners, haven't heard the difference between those two terms before. I'm not sure whether you could go over what the difference is. I suppose, um, apart from the obvious, maybe. Well, I guess it's obviously all linked. But I think when you look at the climate crisis generally what we're talking about is the amount of carbon that's going into the atmosphere that's leading to warming and all of the climatic changes that we're seeing. 
Um, when we're talking about the nature crisis, which of course is a major contributory to the climate crisis, we're also talking about uh, the loss of biodiversity, the thing like insect numbers massively declining, um, uh, the overfishing of uh, the oceans, um, things that, you know, the destruction of the Amazon, uh, these things that people would more typically associate with, uh, with the natural world. Although, of course, you know, in any ecosystem, it is all connected. So, you know, when the Amazon is being burned, we're not only adding greenhouse gases, we are also losing biodiversity. And the less biodiversity we have, the less resilient the planet is to, um, is to uh, climate change. So it's all, it's all obviously um, quite closely uh, connected and in ways that we don't even necessarily see. For example, one of the most interesting pieces of research that we, um, well, I became aware of this year that came out of um, uh, work we were doing in the Ant Antarctic, we didn't do this work, but it, it emerged as part, of, as part of that story, was, was linking krill, these tiny little fish and, you know, shrimp-like things, um, which feed whales, obviously whales eat them, and then whales obviously uh, poo, and then those krill basically go to the bottom of the deep ocean as poo and get locked into the carbon cycle, like down for like thousands of years. So basically, we see this cycle where, you know, little things on the top of the food chain are then turned into uh, fixed carbon at the bottom of the ocean, which helps in the fight against climate change. So whales actually are heroes in the fight against climate change. Go whales! Like, you know, so isn't it crazy? So, you know, so if you have healthy whale populations and healthy krill populations, you're actually helping in a little way to mitigate climate change. And I think all of these connections um, you know, are what makes the world a wonderful place. And I think this is why places like the Heath, for me, are really great because people can witness a bit of nature and a bit of biodiversity and, and the wonder of it uh, in a massive city, right? Yeah, so, have you been spending much time on the Heath? Yeah, I take the kids there regularly and, you know, we love just exploring the woods more now and getting in there and climbing trees and avoiding uh, nettles and that kind of thing yeah so I, don't know, I think it's part of childhood experience to get stung all over with nettles anyway so you know to avoid them in the future <laughs> yeah that's, that's a, a plant i don't we don't have so much in canada that i at least i'm aware of and dock leaves as well so i've, I've learned that's something i've picked up being in england is the uh yeah the value of a good dock leaf although i i mean i might be alone in this but i don't actually quite know what a dock leaf looks like only that it's by nettles so i'm sort of looking at leaves and going is this a dock leaf i don't know yeah i'm gonna rub it on and see <laughs> depend on my children's the local knowledge basically yeah of course <laughs> um so in your kind of own personal life what changes i know that the climate crisis really you know probably we should be directing it at big business as you said but in people's own lives what kind of measures do you take in your life to be more sustainable maybe and, and environmentally friendly yeah i think they're, they're pretty obvious stuff really i think um one is i really try to uh walk or ride my bike rather than drive i'm you know i'm pretty i'm you know so that's that's one thing 
Um, so just reducing the impact of just getting around. Um, that's one thing. The other is really looking at meat consumption. Now I'm not a vegetarian. I have been, and I, you know, probably should be. Um, but, uh, but I, I've not managed to do that. Um, but what I am trying to do is to really reduce the amount, uh, of meat that, that, um, that I consume. And I think that's something that's easy for people to do and necessary for people to do that has a big impact. Um, a third thing really is looking at basic stuff around like how is your apartment, how is your flat or your house set up? Is it energy efficient? Um, do you have insulation? These type of things. And that, I think that's what the government's announcing today, something to do with that. Uh, and basic things like using a re reusable cup. Um, now, it's a bit tricky right now because Costa is letting you use it. Starbucks and Cafe Nero, I think, aren't letting you use them. Um, even though the evidence is clear that it makes no difference. Um, so, you know, just things like that, I think are really easy things people, um, uh, people can do. So thanks to Pat for speaking with us. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like, and review. And check out our previous episodes where guests have included Michelle Collins and Matt Everett. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.